like, oh, the day my baby turns four months, they're not going to sleep anymore because everything changes. And that's totally not the case. Like starting at six weeks, the baby starts making their own melatonin where before they just were having it from the mom. With people when we talk about birth experiences, they might be minimizing their trauma because we've been taught intergenerationally that this is just how it is. Right. Oh yeah, like the doctor made that decision, didn't talk to you about it, of course. Or, oh yeah, you know, they used an implement that was extremely painful for you and uh, often unnecessary. That's just what they had to do, right? There's a normalization of trauma doesn't mean that it's any less traumatic. And everything would just get solved with birth control pills, but I kept feeling like this is counterproductive. Right. Grandmother, my great-grandmother had 10 kids. Mm. My paternal grandmother had nine. So in my head, I'm thinking, you know, this, this is, Black people don't have this issue. I've mm. never heard of Black people having this issue. Hey, welcome to the Push Through Podcast. I'm your host, Keisha Reeves. I'm a licensed professional counselor here in Atlanta, Georgia, where I own a group practice where we specialize in women's issues, maternal mental health, and all things wellness. Here on the podcast, we're going to be talking about parenthood, how to take care of yourself, and a little bit of in-between things. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a quick chat with me. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Positivity Alkaline Water is an exclusive premium bottled water experience. Every drop of Positivity is fused with positive electrolytes and each sip restores pH balance. Positivity Alkaline Water is created to refresh your outlook on life, restore your body, and renew your mind. To purchase your own bottle of Positivity Water, head over to PositivityWater.com. Okay, so for this episode, you're in for a bit of a treat. So some years ago, when I just become a mother of two, I realized that I had had years of often feeling very overwhelmed and overstimulated. And once becoming a parent of two little ones, it went into hyperdrive. And I didn't know how to better support myself. I didn't know what to do about it. And in some ways I kind of felt a little bit as if I did not have a good grip on things or just an ability to just cope in the midst of chaos. And I didn't really understand it. I noticed that several things would often move me. I could go to a museum and see a piece of art and just be taken aback and could just sit at it in awe. I could also listen to music and feel as if I was just teleported into a different time. Um, I remember even recently I went to the Anita Baker concert for Valentine's Day and she sang one of my favorite songs, Body and Soul, and I felt like my soul was literally like elevated out of my body and I just had this euphoric experience. And the challenges that I would face when Ellis was born was if he was crying for whatever reason that I couldn't seem to pacify. And then I had this other three-year-old that kept saying, mommy, 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 mommy. I felt as if it was like nails on a chalkboard. Or if I was in the grocery store and Ellis could be throwing things out of the buggy and Ezra could be crying because I wouldn't buy him fruit roll-ups or whatever. And I would just be on this mission to just get out but it would just seem just so difficult 
for me. And even like when I was in the car and one could be calling my name and one could be crying or one could be like throwing something or just even just like singing very loudly. And it would make it just very difficult for me to concentrate. But I would notice in comparison that my husband would just be completely unbothered. Like it would almost be like white noise for him. But even for sometimes like with my son, if his voice is at a certain pitch, um, and again, he could just not even be like whining, but he could just be like talking in this screeching sound. It would just make me feel just very overstimulated. And any time where there's just too much going on, I have to like take a moment, gather myself, talk myself through it. But I say all of that to say, I used to wonder if there was something just unique about the way that I cope. Like if, if I just wasn't coping as far as like the status quo, even with my empathy, I could just be so, just just so full of empathy for anyone and, and what they were going through. And, you know, ironically, I love watching documentaries and I love hearing the backstories of people and how they became to be who they are or things that just happen in time. But at the same time, that documentary could just have this huge impact on me and it could sit on me for 48 to 72 hours and I could just be thinking about it. And and it would almost be like this emotional box that was laid on my chest that is difficult to then get back off of me. And throughout the years, you know, for anyone who knows me, running has been like my method of self-care where I can just be able to like breathe things out and flush anything that I'm carrying on me off of me, that's been a huge way to cope. But for the longest, I didn't understand like why I was so filled with such empathy, how I could just be so in tuned to my emotions or other people's energies or what vibes they could be giving off of or feeling incredibly overstimulated by my kids. And it wasn't until I stumbled upon Elaine Aaron and her book, The Sensitive Person. And I think initially, before I even discovered the book, it was an Instagram post where someone was listing out the symptoms of being a highly sensitive person, was crediting her that I even learned about what a highly sensitive person was. And from there, I purchased that book. And then from there, I purchased the workbook. And then from there, it was a highly sensitive person as a parent and is in love and in all of her work because it really made me understand that it didn't mean that I was flawed. It didn't mean that there was something off kilter in my brain or my DNA. It just means that I had a superpower that I wasn't really unaware enough to know just how to tune it correctly or how to cope with it or how to make it work in my favor. And when I sent Elaine the email, it was just like the shot in the dark of being hopeful that she would be a guest on the show because I realized that it wasn't just me that was struggling with this. There were several other parents in which I met through my practice of work or just in support groups or in any type of speaking engagement that I would do where they also found themselves having the difficulty of not losing their cool or not being standoffish if they felt overwhelmed by their children or even really desiring to have more children, but not sure that they would be able to show up to be the version of the parent that they would want to be because they could feel so overwhelmed at times. And Elaine responded and she said that she would love to come on the show. (laughs) 
So please enjoy our conversation about being a highly sensitive parent. Thank you guys for joining us again for another episode of the Push Through Podcast. And I am super excited to introduce our next guest. I have Dr. Elaine Aaron. And just to do her intro before she comes on, she earned her MA from York University in Toronto in clinical psychology and her PhD at Pacifica Graduate Institute in clinical depth psychology, as well as interning at the C.G. Hung Institute in San Francisco. Besides beginning the study of the innate temperament trait of high sensitivity in 1991, she, along with her husband, Dr. Arthur Aaron, are two of the leading scientists studying the psychology of love and close relationships. They are also pioneers in studying both sensitivity and love using functional magnetic resonance imaging. Thank you for being on the show. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for having me. I'm very happy to be here and talk to and about highly sensitive parents and, and parents in general, because my recommendations for sensitive parents, I think, really apply to all parents, just as most of everything that's good for sensitive people um, actually applies to everybody, <laughs> like the canaries in the mine, except just to be sure you know, the canaries did not die. They were too valuable. They were quickly rushed up when they passed out, but they were a, a way for the miners to know that there was a problem. And that's that's the case for sensitive people. We were the first ones to complain about the secondhand smoke and yeah. not having a quiet place on trains and things like that. So right. yeah. Glad to be here. Right. Before I get into kind of how this all began and, and how you all started, I first discovered, first of all, I know that, you know, this is a trait, but I, when I first discovered you a few years ago in your work, I felt like, oh my gosh, like I should have learned about this in grad school. Like this should have been, you know, like taught as a whole like course, because for me, I had thought was, is something wrong with me? Like, can, why can I self-regulate? Why do I get so overstimulated? And, and why do I just feel so overwhelmed a lot? And definitely once became a mom of two boys, I definitely oh. felt like it was heightened. Oh. And when I first read highly sensitive person, I was like, this is who I am. You know, like when I go to an art museum and I want to cry looking at a painting or I feel deep empathy. And, and I remember I was explaining a highly sensitive person to my brother. And I was like, yeah, this is who I am. This makes so much sense. Like there's nothing wrong with me. And he was like, and why did you want to become a therapist? <laughs> and I was like, I know, right? It's crazy. But I'm, I'm, I have so much empathy. This is why I became a therapist and I moved and I'm touched. But it, it really it hit home to be able to figure out like, this is what you are and, and it's nothing that's wrong with you. You're just tuned a bit differently. And if anything, how you, how you exist in this world and this environment just makes you so much more present. And it's about how do you manage mm -hmm. all of the things, you know, that stimulates mm -hmm. you. So with all of that said, 
Um, people sometimes have the misconception of what exactly a highly sensitive person is. So how would you define a highly sensitive person? Let's, let's do that. And I'll do that. With the back of my mind, what you said during all that was, why weren't you trained in this? And of course, it takes time for information to reach doctors and professional schools and and psychiatrists and the you know teachers, all of the professions, so that it's taught. And so we'll just do a little teaching right now. But this is this is the lecture I would give the, the intro lecture on the subject. Uh, high sensitivity is a trait that is basically innate. People are can be sensitive in all different ways. So I'm using the term sensitive in a special way, which is an innate trait that's found in about 30% of humans and in a, in a similar kind of minority in at least 100 species, probably most species that are social animals in particular, because it's a trait that evolved partly for responding to each other, to being able to recognize expressions and moods and all that in, in the rest of the group. But the, the thought about why it evolved mainly is that when you're sensitive, you notice opportunities that others don't see. And because of that, that gives you an advantage in your own survival. And if everybody were highly sensitive, there'd be no advantage. Everybody would notice the same the same opportunities, but if we notice the opportunities sooner, we get to take advantage of them sooner. So that's why it's a minority. It's It does have the disadvantages, I'll get to easily being overstimulated if you're processing all that information, but uh, that that can be managed. And it's that's not the reason that they're a minority because they're they, the rest of them don't survive or something like that. No, it's 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 interesting to think of it as a survival strategy because that's a way to make use of it. What What is the job for survival? Um, evolutionarily speaking, it's getting your DNA, your children onto the next generation. So your sensitivity is a way that you have an advantage in getting your children onto the next generation as long as you survive it yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, we use four letters to talk about it just because it's easy to remember, D-O-E-S. And by the way, there's a movie called Sensitive, the Untold Story, which is a fun movie to watch. It's a full-length documentary, and it does um, give a good picture and an easy way of, of sensitivity. So we use these letters, D-O-E-S. D is for depth of processing, and that is the most important part of the trait, is that we think about things more than others. Okay. When that, that involves parenting, we think a lot about how to parent. We think deeply about our child and observe our child carefully, which can be tiring. We have trouble making decisions because we consider all the aspects to the decision. We can't just impulsively buy a new car seat. We have to know the best car seat. <laughs> and that, it, takes, it takes a lot of work to do it that way. So the second letter is O for overstimulation. And it's the only disadvantage of the trait it's that we can get overstimulated, which just means we've we've had it. And parents of young children know that feeling and all the good things that we do to, to avoid it or to get over it, uh, we, have, we have to catch that within the context of a child who's got even more needs than we do. So uh, overstimulation is an issue, but on the other hand, 
and it's it's an it's an inevitability given the depth of processing and also e which is for emotional responsiveness and empathy which is wow so critical for raising children being sensitive to their needs but at the same time uh and and interestingly to if you're going to process something deeply you have to feel something about it so that's so they go hand in hand the depth of processing and the emotional responsiveness so the last letter is s for sensitive to subtleties and it's it's a little bit uh, added on maybe hardly necessary because what do you think of the sensitivity but this again allows us to notice so many sensitive parents told me they knew their child was sick before anybody else did mm. they child was just a little bit off not quite normal right. and uh, and they had a quick sense of things like uh, playmates and teachers and parents you know that how that was going to work out for their child that uh, that other person or that situation the classroom whatever so those are the four i add two uh, i add one more which is two letters which is ds for differential susceptibility which means that because we soak up our environment we're, we're noticing everything especially when we're children we are more susceptible to good environments and to not good environments and so as a result if a child grows up in a if if a sensitive child grows up in a very difficult household they're more affected they're more likely to be depressed anxious shy than than other kids because lots of kids are not as affected. And if they grow up in a good enough household, they soak up the good stuff more than other kids do. So being resilient has the disadvantage of not getting all the good stuff because you're not noticing as much. And so this also works in the classroom where sensitive children are quick to pick up on whether teachers you know, like them or don't. And uh, and respond very well to that, to even a little bit of that positive from a teacher. Mm -hmm. So that's the characteristics. It's found in equal numbers of men and women, boys and girls, and uh, it's not the same as introversion because there are uh, a number of sensitive people who are extroverts. Also, gets a little confusing because we can have the trait of high sensation seeking which is getting easily bored, which kind of people say it's like one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake because the sensitive part says that's too much. Yeah. And by the way, people who, well, you know, people who want to be therapists and people who want to be journalists uh, um, in the media, they're people who need change, need yeah. to see new clients, need to interview new people at the same time that um, they're also very good at it because they're so sensitive to the person they're interviewing or to their audience, the needs of their clients. It's, the, it's, it's a very good, um, a good combo for people who have both of those traits. That's about it's 50. Like when you describe it, it's, it feels like kind of like walking this tightrope, you know, if like this, <laughs> this imbalance, like you want this change in, in things that are new, but at the same time, it can feel yes. like a lot of overwhelming <laughs> simultaneously. Yeah. I'm, I'm, there's a new article on a research article coming out on that. And so for, for my website, for my blog, I'm going to write an, an article on about it again, about myself, because I am at the age where I've done every, a lot of things. So 
so much bores me because I've done it and I don't like to do things over again. But uh, because of my age, I also have to be more aware of my physical limits and it's tough. To <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Like, how have you and we're going to get into highly sensitive parent, but you were saying that and it just resonates with me so much because it just reminds me of myself. I ran two half marathons last year. I just started <laughs> painting class and yeah. I'm writing a book. I got the practice and my mom is always like, don't you ever just sit down? Like, isn't it just like enough, you know, like how do no. you respond no. to people whenever they were like, Elaine, enough, you've accomplished, you know, so many right. things. Right. Yeah, I'm writing another book right now. I find creativity is one of the best ways to satisfy that because you have to think about new things and research things or just think about them in new ways. And that's, and every day there's something new facing you, whatever, however you're going to write something. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's just a, a blessing and a problem having that additional trait. So uh, let's see if there's, I always keep a little cheat sheet here for the, yeah, I think I've mentioned everything that pretty much what I wanted to say. Well, tell me what inspired you to first start during doing the research on the highly sensitive trait. And from that work, how did it then lead you into the highly sensitive parent? Yeah, so um, a therapist told me I was highly sensitive and she had never used the words before. We were discussing a, an overreaction. A doctor had sent me to therapy because I... He said I'd overreacted to something. So I described her and she says, well, that just sounds like you're highly sensitive. She said, I am and my husband is. And I think all the people I really like knowing are highly sensitive. But that does mean you might you might react differently than others to that procedure. So, so then I thought about it. Uh, and I, being a therapist myself or in training, I thought, well, um, you don't hear, you hear this, this term a lot, but you don't see any research on it. So I tried to find research on it and there wasn't any. So that inspired me to get into the research. And my husband's really good at, at research. So we, I wrote a questionnaire and he did all the statistical validation of it. And so we were kind of off to the races that way. And I did public speaking uh, more than, and there'd always be parents who would come up and say, I'm just overwhelmed this helps me so much but i don't know what to do you know <laughs> and i wrote other books but then this book was the last one that i wrote i had i'd written it um pretty much completely five years before that but i just wasn't getting around to finishing it by then i was a grandparent and i wasn't as fascinated by the subject but i actually i just hired somebody to make me finish it yeah. you know, so send a chapter to her, she would edit it and I would get it back and edit it again. She just, I just said, make me finish it. So that's how we finally got done. I felt sad because some of the parents that I'd spoken to, the kids were, were probably in high school or college <laughs> by the time, by the time uh, I got around to giving them that book. But I, I just, as I said, I, I think it's really important because oh, how we raise children is so important. That's the idea of differential susceptibility especially for sensitive children, but but 
all children, how we raise them determines the quality of our whole society. And um, so, and parents are struggling, sensitive parents are struggling, especially there's a couple research studies that show that sensitive parents are not always the best parents and it's perfectly obvious why, because they're overstimulated. I don't know if you know Diane Baumrein's three styles of parenting. It's in all the research literature about authoritarian, which is being really bossy, authoritative, which is the good kind where you you still have your boundaries, but you listen to them. <laughs> and then permissive, which is just letting them do what they want. And they found in a couple of studies that sensitive parents tend to be both more authoritarian and more permissive. And of course, I always joke, when you've absolutely had it, you say, oh, go do what you want or go to your room and shut the door and don't come out until I tell you <laughs> that authoritative parenting requires energy. And we know when we're not doing it, but we can't always do it. Nobody can always do it. But uh, that's why well, getting into my advice of pr protecting the nervous system of, of the sensitive parent is, is the most important thing for the outcome of the child. Right. In, in the first chapter of your book, Highly Sensitive Parent, you talk about how being overstimulated may affect your parenting style. And you use the quote, I'm doing well and doing terribly from parents having <laughs> like reported, like feeling as if right. you know, they've both. Right. both been on that side. And, and I think that you're so right, like either you're permissive or either you're authoritarian because it's so much in that moment. And it was kind of like the reason why I had reached out to you because in the work that I do in maternal mental health, I've had a lot of clients where even all the way from having a new baby all through, you know, elementary age and adolescence of struggling with that dichotomy of, you know, I, I want to show up as my best self, but I can feel overwhelmed sometimes. And I don't feel like I'm being the parent that I would mm -hmm. like to be. Can you speak to that as far as like some tips and strategies that you found? Absolutely. There is number one and almost nothing matters as much as number one. You got to get help. Mm. You cannot just. I, I don't think I don't think human beings were ever meant to raise children by themselves. I mean, think about it. This is only something that's happened with with nuclear families, which has come along with the movement of labor around the country to suit capitalism. I'm, I'm not anti-capitalism. I'm just saying that, that, that I've read about how this happened was that when a company needs somebody, you move to there. Yeah. Uh, and and then that means that your, your extended family is not as likely to be around you. You know, lots of people are waking up to this problem, but sometimes it's very hard to solve because also if you need help, you need some money. So it's either family and friends that you're embedded in or you pay for childcare. Uh, and sometimes parents can help each other out with, with you know, sort of forget the term for it now, but the basically co-op parenting and mm -hmm. co-op babysitting. But that still means that some days you have more than your children on your hands, which can be very exhausting. You have to find ways to get help. And if you can't, of course, there's all kinds of tips for, for managing, but I I just believe that no one should be at home alone with an infant 
or with young children, especially more than one young child, because there's such a handful. But uh, it's it's amounts to sensory deprivation, which is cruel and unusual punishment in prisons because you you're not with another adult, so there's nobody to talk to. Mm-hmm. My daughter-in-law, her her mother is a PhD in child development, and they have the money to do this, but I think it's impressive. They never, ever let anybody be home alone with a child. There's mm-hmm. always two people there, whether they have to hire someone or it's just, you know, it's just how they arrange their lives. I think that's quite extraordinary. I spent only a little time alone with my son, and it was really hard for me. And I think it's harder for sensitive people, partly because of the overstimulation, but also because of the depth of processing of needing to talk with somebody. You're having lots of experiences, but you can't talk to your little child about them. Yeah. I mean, like even just imagining someone who's experiencing postpartum depression. Oh, yeah. Highly sensitive person. And then you're the person who's at home with the baby. It's it's a lot and it can put both people in danger. And it also makes me think about, you know, during the pandemic, when so many parents were at home and couldn't have other folks in the house with them to help, and they were just alone with their children trying to survive. Yeah. It was terrible. In some cases, it it worked well because both parents were at home. I saw them were both parents were home. But... <laughs> it worked to the opposite effect that you didn't get any relief. And I, I knew somebody in Italy who... who who was uh, home alone with her two-year-old during that time. I think after a while, her mother was able to come and live with her. But then we don't always have perfect relationships with our parents. Mm-hmm. It's it's okay in maybe not 24 hours. But at any rate, yeah, that uh, I just, it's, it just really feels unnatural. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet you'll find <clears throat> sensitive people especially <clears throat> They feel guilty about getting help because it costs money usually or costs somebody energy. And the norm is wrongly, I think, that it's normal to be home alone with a child. That Lucky you, you get to stay home and be a parent, get to stay home and be a mom or or a stay-at-home dad. But it's, it's not for some people. I think it works. I don't want to make it as a blanket statement, but for most people, I think it doesn't. Some people are just so into parenting and seem to be a natural at it. And often because they took care of children when they were young, you know, siblings, but it's still a lot. Right. I love how the guilt guilt has to go. You know, we, in fact, I joke to people, they say, Spend the money now. Okay, you've got money set aside for your child's uh, college education. He's not going to make it to college. If- <laughs> yeah, yes, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Let's let's spend the money on how we can get you there. I love how in the book, like you speak to that when you're talking about dealing with the guilt and comparisons, and and I have that a lot with some clients where there's this feeling of shame or feeling inadequate because they're not able to be like these social media parents that they see on Instagram who are with their kids all day or do all of these activities. And they may be the parent 
this highly sensitive parent who is counting down to bedtime or nap time so that they can go be alone somewhere and, you know, kind of calm down for the day. So I love how you talk about, you know, working through the shame and not compare. And it's almost as if like all of the the wonderful things about being a highly sensitive parent and really embracing all of those gifts and then really working through all of the strategies so that you can recover from the overstimulation, like how you talked about all of these different self-care practices so that you can then recharge and go back at it again, especially if you don't need, if you don't have as much support. Oh yeah. Um, you, you do all that you can. And of course, the more that you take care of yourself, the more that your child will not be overwhelming because the child reflects your, as you get overstimulated. Yeah. So I was thinking about my son when my husband and I were living actually in a little, little tiny apartment in Paris. And while we were there, we learned to meditate. We learned transcendental meditation. And I'd been having a problem with my son at night at about dinner time. I think that's often when children act up, he would just get cranky and I'd be trying to make dinner and he'd want my attention and just things would flare out of control. So then when we learned to meditate, my husband and I took turns meditating for 20 minutes. And by the time I was done meditating and came back to be with him, he was so mellow. It was just like that that little 20 minute break um, from me from him and him from me <laughs> uh, made everything go smoothly. So doesn't have to be a lot of time off, but of course, if there's nobody else in the house, you can't get 20 minutes. Okay. Um, but I also emphasize that when children nap, everybody wants to get as much as they can done during that nap, but it's better that you rest during those nap times. Mm-hmm. You just have to make rest the first priority so that you can be a good parent. Right. You you mentioned that when you're talking about um, how to cope with the overstimulation and how to set boundaries. And you you spoke to that of saying, like being able to have rest, having breaks. And you also mentioned that with um, like saying no sometimes to play dates, if they, those things can be overstimulating. Um, but being able to practice those strategies is helpful for how you can show up in the way that you would like. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed... Um, you know how like when you were talking about not everybody can have like 20 minutes that they can get away when it is like you're in the crust of it all. Um, what what recommendations do you feel like has been helpful? Is it like a, a mantra? Is it self-talk? Is it deep breathing when when your kid is having a tantrum at the grocery store? Right. Well, all of those help. Uh, I think any of them, anything that causes you to back off a little bit, which gives you the big picture. A more subtle nervous system always has the bigger picture and you can you can then see better what needs to be done and not just be, I remember my grandson bought him a cookie, won the cookie, I broke it in half to and handed it to him and he started screaming. He wanted the whole cookie, not, not the cookie broken. He wouldn't eat a broken cookie. <laughs> just wanted to murder him, you know? Uh, those things, 
happen, you know, just to stand back and realize, okay, I'm going to go buy another cookie <laughs> because that is the only solution in this situation. Uh, but it's also good. I think I cited in the book some research on tantrums and how uh, different kinds of tantrums and how to how they go through a certain cycle and that there's a certain point where they're gonna they're gonna stop and then there's another point where you can't do much about it until they stop. Mm. So like this uh, woman and I, I mentioned her in the book, the, the one who talks about simply holding a child through yes, a tantrum. Yes, yeah, 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 loving on them and cuddling them. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that that works if you can do it and and that can work for yourself because if you know you're following a rule that works, that but some professional has said this works or this is how it's going to be, I think that does add to the big picture. It helps us to feel that we're not alone and it's terrible in public when people, oh, people can be so absurd about you're a bad mother, you know, and you're a bad father and why is your children behaving this way? Because they don't understand about different ages. I always recommend reading these books about understanding your one-year-old, understanding your two-year-old, because we often just project onto children more grown-up traits, like they're doing this, you know, because they don't like me or they're trying to hurt me or something. No, they're, they're just, they're experimenting with how what kind of reaction they're going to get from you. <laughs> and so it's, it's important to have a way to step back and often it's a, a deep breath or 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 thinking of some good advice from someone that has helped you in situations like this before. I'll right. tell you, if I, if I see a parent in with a child who's in distress, I go up and ask if there's anything I can do. Yeah. I'll mm -hmm. offer I'll offer to hold the child even a, a yeah. little like an infant because sometimes they settle down right away as soon as somebody else is holding them sometimes they they don't you know if you're past the age one they may be distressed by being held by a stranger but i just have great great sympathy for absolutely yeah anyone who's on a plane anyone yeah. on a line or somewhere and you're just trying to juggle all of that and i know it, it must not be kind i mean that must not be easy and it's unkind to, you know, shame them or judge them because we have no control over our children and what they do. And when they decide to spiral and most parents are just doing the best that they can. Mm -hmm. um, towards the end of the book, you talk about couples and partners and um, the relationship and as they are as parents. What suggestions do you have for the partner who isn't a highly sensitive person and how they can support the one who is in in their parenting and, and when they get overwhelmed or overstimulated. Well, number one is to really believe the trait is real because if you don't do that, then you're gonna be resenting your sensitive partner because you're gonna feel that they're just, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. either disordered or, or, or just complaining, uh, malingering or whatever. Because we all make the assumption that everybody's kind of like us, but people are not all alike. And sensitive people really cannot handle the um, the overstimulation that some other people can. But if you're done, if you're if you're also exhausted, then 
you just have to develop a language between the two of you as to who's in worse shape or who's facing, you know, a bigger thing in the near future that has to be dealt with. So you, you kind of do triage and, and figure out who should take over at this time. And I think those discussions should happen when, when there isn't the stimulation. So you should have a strategy for what you're going to do when, when you are highly, highly overstimulated, either one of you. Um, my husband has learned over the years, you know, that taking care of me pays off for him. He's not highly sensitive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, knows, he knows it pays off for him to give me a break, mm -hmm. the child. So that's what first you have to recognize. It's just that it's real. Right. And, and to look at all the positive sides of the trait that you're getting from your sensitive partner is very often people don't think about that. When I first wrote the book, I asked the first book, I asked my husband to read the chapter on relationships. And it was all about how the advantages and disadvantages of your partner not being sensitive and or not being as sensitive or sensitive in this way. And uh, he said, you didn't write in here about all the advantages for me of your sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And, and, that's important to realize that it's a coin. There's two sides to the coin, the advantages and the disadvantages, but often they get separated in the minds of, of people who don't have the trait and think, I love this person for this, this, and this, but I sure don't like them for doing that. And, and in fact, they couldn't, they couldn't help it. That's all part of the same thing. So it, it helps, and it helps the sensitive parent too, without being pushy, is just to think about what they contribute because of their sensitivity that maybe their their child is healthier because they're keeping more more attention on on health and nutrition and all those kind of things or during the pandemic being more aware of what the risks were and and what risks could be taken just having read everything and thought about it more processed it all more deeply. I'm sure since people <laughs> survived more than other people during the pandemic, because yeah. they thought all that more and their children got, did better and they're probably their whole family got, were, did better. So um, a lot of it is in the decision-making very often the sensitive person just knows what needs to be done. Absolutely. I described it to like a client once. It's like, this is your superpower, yeah. but it's about figuring out how to exist in that power. And mm -hmm. even when you, you mentioned that about like the decision-making I've been in, I've, now I'm in the place of like figuring out where my kid is going to go to school. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, this overwhelming idea of what should it be? This should it be that, you know, feeling just overwhelmed because it's such a, you're really like considerate about it and how this is going to impact their well-being and who they are. And even about like um, the boundaries or um, strategies of, of knowing what things will overstimulate you going to birthday parties sometimes can be really hard and figuring out, okay, oh, yes. telling my husband, you got this one. I'm not, I'm not going to this one because it's yes. fun for the kid, but it can be a lot for someone who's highly sensitive. Oh, yes. I've gone as a grandparent to some of these, you know, people now do them more in these places designed for birthday parties, but they can be so noisy, especially these places where there's lots of gymnastic things to do. And if you're indoors, it's it's just crazy making. And don't have two kids that are two different ages 
going two different <laughs> different directions at the venue. It's it's a lot. Yeah, that's right. Is um, one or both of your children sensitive? You know, I don't I don't know yet. I'm not sure. I I I feel as if my youngest is. He's three. Mm -hmm. So once I had this is just to give you an example. Once I had like tripped and fell down and my oldest stepped over me and he was <laughs> like, what's for dinner? <laughs> but my three-year-old was like, are you okay, mommy? Can I, can I help you up? Do you need anything? <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking it's um, my. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when there's two children, usually one of them is sensitive. Mm. So, and, and then of course you have the issues of, managing siblings <laughs> right. Right. which is really, I only had one child but I watched my my uh daughter-in-law with my two grandsons and it was really hard after the second one was born really hard everybody you know even she was saying oh he really loves his new baby brother no any any psychologist could see the signs is this not love <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of love in some of this uh, right. because you're just being replaced. Um, and and happily, it was easy for dad and grandparents to step in and and uh, provide the older one with everything that he needed in terms of attention while mom was turned the other way. But yeah, there's so much to manage and, and having to, in fact, I didn't know about high sensitivity when I decided, when I didn't get pregnant again. I just, something in me said, I don't, I don't think I can do this again. <laughs> and um, I think I've, I've sat through lots of sensitive people dealing with the question of, well, am I wrong not to have a second child because children should have a sibling and it's such a high pressure on that. Again, children should have a sibling, but um, sometimes it's really not the best idea because it's, it's more than twice as much stimulation when they're small. When when you're dealing with the the competition between them or the or just managing, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you, uh, you have to get them to different birthday parties, <laughs> to and different the soccer parties. games, and all of that, mm -hmm. and the activities that are expected. That you know, when I was little, there wasn't any soccer or baseball i mean we went out and played or but parents didn't have to be there to supervise it um there were no play dates you just played with the kid in the neighborhood so i'm not saying that that's better but it's just more things that are assumed of parents that they should do i mean my mother was clearly working much harder and you know cooking and washing and all because of not having all the appliances so but still, you have to remember that when you're off doing those things, you're getting some downtime, some relief from your child. Yes. And that's really an expectation that you, I mean, I have real mixed feelings about attachment parenting. I think attachment is so important to children, but there's no rule that they only, only one attachment figure. Better to have several attachment figures. Yeah. Yeah. And. And you can't, this idea that you're physically touching the child during the first year or two, that's just too much for a sensitive person. You mm -hmm. need your physical boundaries. You need, it's such a shock when you first have a child and you realize, 
oh my goodness, this is this is 24-7 somebody else in my space. <laughs> right. And imagine if you're also breastfeeding, like at that, that can be a lot. I remember in the book you were saying how it can be too much for the child to have this one person as that source for that versus if they have, you know, the other parent or grandparents and aunts and uncles and other family members that they can also get that emotional connection through as well. Yep. I, I, I breastfed for almost two years and I was happy doing it, but I had my husband with me all for all except the, a few months. Um, so I could all, he, he would take care of my, our, our son uh, in the morning and I would go off and do something else, come back. He would go off in the afternoon and I would then be there the rest of the time and still be worn out when he came home in the evening because it'd be a, a long day, but um, yeah, I just hope that all the parents listening to this can find a way to keep their their inner peace mm -hmm. as much as possible. Right. Um, and some of it's around identity too, as I say in the book, if you've been working at something and then you've had some kind of a career or just been out in the world with other people and all of a sudden you take that away your your own view of who you are as a person um, maybe you can be fully satisfied mm -hmm. as a mother but sometimes our that's not our basic career path <laughs> full-time full -time mothering or even child development some people get phds in that but other people are interested in and math or physics or engineering and not, but, but, uh, you know, we are, I think having children is a wonderful thing. I, I joke that having a child is wonderful. Not having children is wonderful in a different way. So mm -hmm. don't, don't feel pressured and having one child is wonderful to having two children can be really wonderful, but it also has its drawbacks. So we just have to choose the alternative that suits for us. And it, it's hard around that second child issue because lots of people are putting pressure in and just like the biological clock for the first child, you've got it for the second child too. You don't want them to, to be too many years apart. But sometimes like, like to your point, figuring out which is the less challenging scenario, if you were to wait and have some space and that older child was a little bit more independent before bringing the second one, that could be better for you or not having a second or whatever that's being mindful of your mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and we're so empathic. We want, we want our child to have everything perfect, but maybe what's perfect for them isn't quite perfect for us. And um, I think as adults, people will talk about the advantages, disadvantages of having many years apart with a sibling or being close there's pluses to both so absolutely I um thank you so much for being on the show first <laughs> second I am so grateful for your work and your contribution and I have shared all of your books with all of my highly sensitive parents and 
would love to even create like support groups for them so that they don't feel alone and they don't feel like they're judging themselves, but they can see the others who are also, you know, having these challenges and, and that it's nothing that's wrong with you, but it's just how to equip you with the tools to navigate this. What I know that you are in California and living your life and sailing, but um, anything else that you have going on or, I saw on the events page on the website that there's like a retreat that's towards like the end of the year, but any other, any things that people who are listening to this can look out for from you? Okay, there's a big thing coming up on July 15th, which is the premiere of the uh, Highly Sensitive Men Rising, which is a movie about highly sensitive men. And I think that's going to be a real life changer for for them and for all of us who are impacted by men and because <laughs> we really want to see sensitive men out there and empowered to balance some of the other masculine energy that's out there. I'm going to link all of the things that you listed in the show notes, as well as all of your books. So those that are listening can take part and anticipate the premiere um, that's coming up. Thank you again, Elaine. I'm so grateful for all of your knowledge and everything that you've contributed. Oh, thank you so much for doing what you're doing and doing doing such good things for parents. Oh, so important. Thanks a lot. That was such a great episode. Um, to learn more about the offerings of Elaine and all of the people that work for her, if you head over to her website at hsperson.com, you'll find out resources, interviews, um, self-test books. She is an international bestseller and has several books like The Highly Sensitive Person, Highly Sensitive Parent, The Workbook, Highly Sensitive Person in Love, Highly Sensitive Child, um, and Psychotherapy and the Highly Sensitive Person, as well as the Undervalued Person. And um, there's also a Facebook group for African-Americans who are highly sensitive persons as well. Um, and tons of different events that are coming up similar to um, what Elaine was talking about, Sensitive Men Rising, which is premiering Sunday, July 16th at 2 p.m. Pacific time. <laughs> so um, I hope you enjoyed this episode and please like, share, leave a review Follow us on Instagram at Push Through Mom, as well as Keisha underscore Reeves. Send me an email and check out the website, and I will catch you guys at our next episode. Bye. <laughs>